Well, as we begin this morning, the first thing I want to do is wish you a very happy new year. Thanks. That wasn't too bad for a very cold morning. I appreciate that response. As we get started in this new year, I hope that your year really is off to a good start. And as we begin this new year together, the very first thing that I want to do is begin to lay out for us where we find ourselves. We know that the world is changing at an ever faster rate. We know that really with an exponential rate, it's changing more and more and more quickly. And part of what that change means in our world is that connection with church in general is declining. There are fewer and fewer folks who attend church on a regular basis. In fact, there are fewer and fewer people who state that they have a strong connection with God. So in fact, in our world right now, what is growing are more and more people who would say they have no connection with church or with faith or with God. I was just at a training this past week, and the most recent statistics that I've now heard are that 23% of folks in our country have no connection with God or faith in any way. That means really one out of every four people now have no connection with God, with faith, with church. Now, I realize on the one hand, it sounds a little weird to say Happy New Year and then share that kind of information with you because we want people to know Christ. We want people to know the love of Jesus Christ. But as I share those things with you that I just shared, I also want you to hear this because this is also true. Uh, One of my favorite church communicators is a a guy named Kerry Newhoff, and he states this. He says that increasingly people are looking less and less for flashy or trendy churches out there. In fact, what they're now focusing on more and more is they want churches focusing on mission over method. They desire churches that focus on authentic community and relationships, even over things like really good preaching or really good facilities or really good music. And don't get me wrong, it is not our goal to have bad preaching or bad music or poor facilities, but we just need to understand that just opening the doors and having those three elements in place is not automatically going to draw people through those doors. What people want is to be in relationship, not only with each other, but even if they don't state it as such, they have a deep desire to walk and to be in relationship, even with Jesus Christ. Because what they desire is not the religious routine. What they desire is that authentic relationship. And I share that with us this morning to say, do you know what good news that is for us? Do you know what great news that is for us in a world where there's increasingly less folks walking with God to be able to understand, but they want God. They want to know in that authentic relationship because it's our goal at First Church increasingly to let people engage Christ, meet Christ, see Christ. And the language that we use all the time here is our language of transformation in Christ, changing lives inside and out. This is our heart's desire. It is our heartbeat. It's increasingly what we want to do. We want to simplify everything of who we are to help a world that does not know Jesus, meet Jesus, see Jesus, and engage Jesus. And we trust that as we do that, God will move in significant and powerful ways. I share all of that with you this morning because that brings us to why we're beginning this particular sermon series. One of the best ways to meet Jesus is, first of all, to be able to see Jesus. And again, we can talk about seeing Jesus. And I hear people say, well, if I could just see Jesus, then I would believe in Jesus. And maybe even some of us feel that way. And if, I could, if you could just point him out to me, if I could see with my own eyes, then I would believe On the surface, that can sound pretty simple, but if we start to dig into it, we realize that might be a little more tricky than we first realized. And so as we think about this idea of seeing Jesus, I would suggest to us that maybe we can take some cues from our children. I think there's a reason that Jesus says, if you want to enter my kingdom, you must become like little children. 
Because oftentimes, children can see Jesus in ways that you and I cannot. I was so appreciative last weekend. We had a number of people share their testimonies, share how they were seeing Jesus in their life. And one of those folks who shared put this on her Facebook later on. And I asked if I could share it because it so intrigued me. This was the account of what happened to her last weekend. She said, today I was asked to share a little bit of my story here in worship at First Church. As I nervously ruffled through the papers, my papers to speak, I whispered to my four-year-old son that I felt a little nervous before I went up to speak. I thought it would be good for him to know that adults get nervous and shy too, since he's been dealing with some anxiety himself. He patted the seat between us and he whispered back to me, it's okay, mommy, camouflage. Jesus is like camouflage. He's right here next to you all the time. I love that. I love that description and that insight from that child of being able to see Christ right there. And I wonder if we can start to have more of that mindset ourselves so that we can see Christ among us, even when we think perhaps he's not. Because we do not want to simply be a church where people go through a religious routine. We want to be a people who see Jesus and know Jesus and meet Jesus. And let me tell you, that's what the world desires as well. It does not desire that religious routine to go through. What it desires is an authentic relationship with people who also are seeing Christ themselves. To ask us, to help us, to guide us over the next number of weeks to see Jesus for ourselves, we're going to be using the author of the Gospel of John because he was one who witnessed Christ in his life. He saw Jesus, he walked with Jesus, he listened to what Jesus said, and the author of the Gospel of John points us to another John who was also a witness to Christ. In fact, it's referenced this morning in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to open them with me. We want this, again, to be as interactive as possible between us. So John chapter 1 verses 6 to 8, we hear this. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So do you hear it? John the Baptist is coming as a witness to talk about how he saw Jesus. The writer of the gospel of John comes as a witness to talk about how he sees Jesus. And as we listen to the author of the gospel of John, how he saw Jesus, it's going to help us in our walk as well. To help us begin to see Jesus, the writer of the gospel of John says, if you want to see Jesus, the very first thing you got to do, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. Literally. So again, if you look with me, John chapter one, verses one and two, this is what we hear. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So John takes us all the way back to the very beginning and begins to unpack from there how we are going to see Christ in our lives. Now, I want to say to you this morning, I'm grateful for the work of Tim Keller and others who have also talked about what it means to see Christ, especially in this gospel, because it's been really helpful to me in understanding and looking at this as we go through it together. And as we do that this morning, the first thing that I want to do, these 14 verses in the first part of the Gospel of John, I want to break them down for you because this is going to be our outline throughout our morning. The first four verses are actually about making a radical, 
claim that we first have to understand. Verses 5 through 11 are about a rejection of that claim. And verses 12 through 14 are about the answer to the rejection of that claim. So I want to invite us to keep that in mind here this morning. Verses 1 to 4, we're going to hear about a claim being made. Verses 5 through 11, there's a rejection of that claim. And verses 12 through 14, we find the answer to the rejection of that claim. We're going to spend most of our time on the first four verses because once we understand the claim, then we can understand the rejection of it as well as the answer to it. Now, as I begin to lay that out for us, I just want to say to you, I want to ask you to do your best. Just track with me here for a little bit this morning because I'm not going to apologize for it. We're going to do our best to dive deep. But I think in diving deep together and going and working together, we're going to find the deep riches that God has in God's word for us here this morning. You will notice in verses one through four, John uses a very intentional word. And the word that he uses is word. So it's a little confusing because I could say, well, a word like the word the or a word like the word cat. John uses the word word. And you and I aren't fully going to understand it. But when John uses the word word, he does that to give us certain characteristics of God. And you're not going to remember all of this. But just to give you an idea of what this word word conveys, there's five things that the people who would have first heard it would have understood. And that is that the word or God is personal in nature. Not some abstract thing just out there. Secondly, that the word is divine in nature. We hear that in verse 1. Third, that this person, this word was never created. Uh, In fact, he has no beginning. He's not divine-ish. He is rather of the utmost divine. We understand that the word or God is the source of all life. All life is found in God. And then verse 14 tells us later on that in reference to verse 1 and what we just read, that it's Jesus Christ who becomes the flesh the word to dwell among us. Now, again, that's a lot to immediately throw at you. I don't expect you to remember all of that right now. We could spend five weeks, almost five months just on that part, but it just gives you an idea of some of the connotations that comes with the use of the word word. Now, the word, the Greek word that John uses here is a word called logos, logos. And what John is telling us is that Jesus Christ is the logos. Now, that's a very intentional word on John's part. In fact, it carries a whole lot of freight, a whole lot of weight, a whole lot of linguistic and cultural significance behind it. And John does this on purpose. And in order for you and I to understand what this term logos really means, we need to unpack it just a little bit. And here's basically what's going on. The Greek philosophers, they came up with this idea of logos because here's what they did. They stood and they looked around nature and they saw there was a general order to nature. I mean, it wasn't total chaos. They could see a sun in the sky that wasn't going crazy. They could see stars every night when they looked in there and they weren't flying all over the place. They could look around and see the natural beauty and landscape. And so they figured, well, there's got to be something holding all of this together. There must be some balance, principle, cosmic force out there that's bringing order to what would otherwise be chaos. So according to Greek philosophy, the logos, the word for the Greeks, was this impersonal, harmonious, divine structure of the cosmos as a whole. They said there has to be something out there holding everything together. So it means this use of the word word, it means way more than just our understanding of a word. There's a much broader semantic range here. It means having a purpose or a reason behind life, finding the thing that's holding all of life together. It's where you and I get our word logic from. So when they looked at the cosmos as a whole, they said there has to be some logic, some purpose behind it that gives order and purpose and meaning to everything that's going on out there. Now, again, I realize this is kind of a high philosophy kind of thing. So let me break it down and give you a more concrete example. 
A couple of weeks ago, I had what was for Matt Lake in Matt Lake's world, a nightmare. And that was, I got into my car, I turned it on, thankfully it started, but one of those dang lights on the, on the dashboard started flashing. And my heart kind of jumped into my throat because I don't know how to fix anything. I'm a horrible mechanic. And I was like, oh man, what's wrong? What's going to happen? Am I going to blow up? What's going on here? So what did I do? I didn't panic too much. I decided after thinking for a little bit, what can I do? Can I still drive this? Am I going to do any damage to it? I realized, you know what? In the glove compartment, there's an instruction manual. Now, it's been a long, long time since I really looked at this instruction manual, but I found it and I opened it up and I found the section that describes the dashboard and the flashing lights. And I found out that what was going on in my car was something going on with a catalytic converter. And as I was reading about this, I was very relieved to find out I could still drive my car some. It just said that there may be some moisture in your gas tank, a little bit of extra moisture that's not usually there. If the light goes off after a few days, you'll be okay. If the light doesn't go off after a few days, you'll blow up. So you need to take it in and find, you know, take it in. So I was like, all right, well, let's see how it goes. Well, I am so glad to say that after a couple of days, actually it went off. And at the moment, it seems to be totally fine. And I am so grateful for that because I am not a mechanic. I share that with you because that instruction manual acts as the logos for my car. That instruction manual describes the purpose and the function of my car. And it shares how to help the car operate at its maximum capacity in full alignment with its intended purpose. So it shares the power source. It says, here's where the gas goes. Here's where the oil goes. Here's the proper tire pressure. Here's the emergency brake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That instruction manual shares how the car must be aligned in order to function at its best capability. And it also points out that if you don't put the car in full alignment with itself, you're not going to get the most value out of it. If you leave the tires not at the right pressure, if you choose not to put gas or oil in, it's not going to just mess things up. Eventually, it's going to be a disaster. So the Greeks were like, what if the universe is like this? What if all of life has a logos? What if, what if there's some divine order, some cosmic structure out there that means if we could just get our lives in alignment with this grand universal plan or logos, then all would go well in our lives. And at the same time, if we don't get our lives in alignment with the logos of the universe, with the way things really are, with the reason for life, then at best, we're going to always have a lack of contentment in our lives. And at worst, we will destroy our lives. And don't we see this all the time? Without logos in our life, without purpose in our life, we're never, ever going to be content. And we see this all the time. We see people and they're like, if I can just get enough money, then I'll be content. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be okay. Or if I can just make my kid perfect, then it'll, be, it'll justify my reason for living. Or if I can just have the perfect house or the perfect car, or if I jump into my work and then finally I'll find the contentment I'm looking for. If I just find the right relationship, the right boyfriend or girlfriend. Over and over, we look for all these things because ultimately we're not settled. And the reason we're not settled is because our life is not in full alignment with the purpose of the universe. It happens when we're not walking with the grand purpose for which we were designed. That's on the good end if our life is not in alignment. If our life is not in alignment, the, the worst end is we destroy our lives. And we might destroy our lives through drugs or the inability to hold relationship and just go from one to another to another to another, or maybe addiction, or maybe stress and anxiety have such a hold on us that it's literally killing us. I mean, think about this. 
If it weren't for this idea that of having our lives in full alignment, wouldn't it make sense that for somebody like a celebrity that every celebrity you met would ultimately be happy and fulfilled? I mean, they have everything this world could want, right? I mean, they have riches and attention and fame. And yet we see a number of celebrities many times literally destroy their lives in all kinds of ways. Why? Because lots of times their life ultimately is not in alignment with the purpose of the universe. Why are there criminals? Why do we need to steal from each other and hurt each other in our world? Because people aren't walking in alignment with the purpose of their life for the whole universe. If we were content and we were happy, there would be no need to steal or hurt somebody else. Why is it that we have wars in our world? Why is it one people try to oppress and take over another? Because ultimately they're searching for something. And because they're not in full control or they don't have the resources of those people they're trying to conquer, they think if I just conquer those people, then I will ultimately be happy. And the Greeks understood this and they were watching this and they said, you know, if we could just figure out what's going on in the universe as a whole and we bring our lives into alignment with it, then our lives will be good and we'll be happy and we'll be content. And that sounds good at a certain level. In fact, I think if all of us were to say, if I were to come around and we were to talk, I would bet most, if not all of us could agree, if we could understand the fabric of the universe and the reality of the universe and bring my life into alignment with it, I bet most of us would be like, yeah, then my life will be good. My life would be happy. But here's the problem. We want to live along the grains of the universe, but nobody can completely agree on what that reality is. And it was true for the Greeks, and it's true for us. Everybody had a different idea on what it meant to live your life in such a way as to be in alignment with the rest of the universe. So some people back in the time of the Greeks said, just be a stoic. Just accept everything that happens. Be strong. Hold a stiff upper lip. Then you'll be happy. So if disappointment comes your way or disappoint, uh, death comes your way, don't let it get to you. Then you'll be happy. Be strong. Other people came along and said, no, 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 that's not the best way to live life and ultimately be happy. The best way to live life is to ultimately be very unselfish. Give away all of your stuff. Be as generous as you can. Be kind to others. Then you'll be very happy. And some people are like, no, 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 that's not the best way to live. They said it's the opposite. You get everything you can. You get all the comforts that you can. You make your life as comfortable as you can. You live for yourself. Then you'll be happy. Everybody had a different idea on what it meant to live into full alignment with the universe. If you fast forward that to today, we do the same thing. It just looks a little different. For example, some of us today are like, if you just live or find enough vitamin D in your life, you're going to be a happy person. Or some of us would say, if you just shop at Target instead of Walmart, then you're ultimately going to be a happy person. I mean, that might be exaggerating a little bit, but we do the same thing. We say, we try to figure out for ourselves, what does it mean to live in full alignment with the universe? So all of these competing thoughts were happening, and it's at this very point where John comes along, and boom, boom, he drops something before them they've never heard before. Here's what John says. He says, all right, Greeks, listen, there is a logos out there just like you thought. However, you have been looking for the logos in rules and abstractions and principles. But listen up, Greeks, there is a logos. There is a thing that we live for. There is something out there that is the source of our design, but it's not a principle. It's a person. It's a person. This is completely new. They'd never heard this before. Look at the way it says it in John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among them. 
mean, stop the presses, hold everything, drop the mic, do whatever you want to do. I can't overstate to you how crazy this is. There's an order to the universe, but it's not an abstraction. It's a person, specifically Jesus Christ. There was a French philosopher who was writing about this at the time, a history of philosophy. He is not a Christian. Listen to what he says. To the horror of the Greeks, Christians maintain that the logos, that is the cosmic principle, was not the harmonious order of the world, but was a single unique personality, one outstanding individual, namely Christ. Not a principle, but an actual person. If the heart of the universe was not impersonal as the Greeks had believed, if it was not just a grand calculus equation in theory, but a person, it meant that there was now an unprecedented emphasis on the idea and importance of love in human life. Church, this is absolutely right. And remember, this is a French professor who's not a Christian. We can't talk about justice or rights for other human beings if the cosmic principle of the world, of the universe, is not human in nature. Only Christians can truly profess this because only Christians believe and understand that behind the cosmic principle of the universe is a person, the one of love in Jesus Christ. If you believe the universe is essentially impersonal, then people don't really matter. I mean, how can they? But if the maker of the universe, the ultimate cause, the primary force is personal, that means that every single person is of worth. Every single person has dignity. Every single person has human rights. Every single one. Because that then is in alignment with the maker of the universe who is personal in nature. So we recognize today we'll be, in our prayer time, we'll be talking about human trafficking and praying against it. Why do we do that? Because the order of the nature of the universe is personal in Jesus Christ. And so we pray against any form of injustice in our world. Now stay with me just a moment because I love this. This is so good, to, at least to me. If you believe that the meaning of life, the logos, is, a, is an abstract principle, well, how are you going to connect with that? So we say, okay, out there, there's, there's this order to the universe. How am I going to get there? How am I going to make a way there? There's only a couple of limited options. You either say, well, I'm going to have to get really smart. I'm going to have to figure out all the theories and trajectories to get to describing that amorphous thing out there. So if I'm smart enough, I can figure out the order of the universe. Or you can say, well, I'm not really smart, but if I'm scientific enough, if I just figure out how this stuff works and I can explain it to such a degree, that will give me access to this order of the universe. Or if we say something like, you know what, I just have to be strong and self-controlled and just force myself into alignment with the order of the universe. If I'm strong enough, then I can get to the order of the universe. You know what the problem with all that is? Do you hear how elitist it is? Only, what we're saying there is only the strong, only the scientific, only the smart have access to the order of the universe. But then Christianity comes along. John comes along today and says, wait, there's a personal logos. Life is not a tale told by someone smarter than us. There's a logos out there who's personal in nature. And the purpose of life is open to all. Not just the smart, not just the strong, not just the elite, but to all. So do you want to align yourself to the ultimate reality of the universe? Here's how you do it. Hear this. You say yes to Jesus. 
Yes to knowing, following, embracing, seeing Jesus. And if you do that, you will bring your life into alignment with the purpose of the universe. Romans 10, 9 says it this way. If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you will find ultimate purpose. And that's open to rich or poor, smart or not smart, scientific or not scientific, and everybody in between. And the elitist notion is gone. I haven't quite figured this out yet in our own house, uh, but dirty dishes seem to be one of the hardest chores for our kids in particular to uh, take care of. Uh, They don't ever walk by the dishes and see a pile of dishes there and say, boy, that's getting uncleanly. I should, I should clean that up as much as I wish they would have that notion. Uh, recently, my wife put a picture on Facebook. Some of the trash was overflowing. I wish my kids would walk by and say, oh, there's a lot of trash there. I should clean that up. They have yet to kind of do that. that. That principle of cleanliness doesn't mean a whole lot to them right now. You know why they'll do the dishes even when they're dirty? You know why they'll do the trash when it's overflowing and kind of disgusting? Because mom and dad say, you need to clean that up. And out of respect for us, and because we have a loving relationship for us, they will be obedient and they will do that. They will do that because ultimately they care about us and and they love us. So my kids are learning life not from a general abstract manual out there, but because of a loving relationship, in our case, a parental loving relationship. So apply that to the rest of the universe. Apply that to getting to know our author, our creator, the one who made us in a loving relationship. And when we have that personal love relationship with Jesus, then we are aligned with the holy purposes of the universe through that relationship. This changed human thought forever. Nobody had ever introduced this idea and concept before, and it swept through the entire Roman Empire. So that's the claim, those verses one through four, that Jesus comes not as an abstract principle, but in a personal way that through relationship, we can know the purposes of the universe. But then you get to verses five through 11, and there's a rejection of that claim. So if you hear with me, John chapter one, verses 10 and 11, it says it right here. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You hear what they're doing? They choose to reject. They choose to say, we don't see this. This middle of the section describes how there's a widespread rejection of Jesus as the logos. Verse five says it this way. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. That word for overcome can also be translated has not understood it, has not comprehended it. So what we learn is there's two ways to reject Jesus. Either we can sort of overpower Jesus in a direct way and say, I absolutely refuse you, Jesus. I don't want you. Or we reject Jesus by saying, you know what? I just don't get you. I can't compute you in my mind. But both of them have the same result. There are some people in our world who say, you know what? I refuse to believe there is one almighty God. I refuse to believe there's an absolute truth in Jesus Christ. They want a more relative way. Those folks are basically saying, I choose to reject. There are others of us who are like, Jesus, you hung out with prostitutes and sinners and you're blowing our whole moral code out of the water. We don't understand you. We're not going to walk with you. And so because we don't understand or recognize, we also reject. It's almost an active choosing to not see what is before us. 
I mentioned to you just a few moments ago, my kids, when they see those dishes, I literally had this happen uh, very recently. I'd asked one of my kids to put our dishes away. They put like 80% away, which I was grateful for, but they left like five or six pieces on the counter, on the counter. And so I called them in and I pointed to the dishes sitting on the counter and I said, what's this all about? And they looked at me, I'm not joking. And they said, what? What? So there are dishes sitting on the counter, not put away. Why didn't you do anything about that? What? And so we kind of walked through it again. And it was, there was an active resistance to seeing what was right before them. And that's basically what John is telling us here this morning. If you look in verses 10 and 11, it says, The world did not recognize him. His own received him not. So because they couldn't fully comprehend him, they reject him. Because he doesn't fit into their mold, they push him away. So in verses 1 through 4, there's this claim that Jesus is the Logos. And in verses 5 through 11, there's a rejection of the claim of Jesus as Logos. So what is the answer to that rejection? Verses 12 through 14. And I invite us to really hear these words because this is as good as anything you will find in the gospel anywhere of Jesus as the Logos. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. It says, we have seen his glory. Oh, that we could see God's glory in all of its amazing fullness through Jesus Christ. The word that's used for dwell here, where it says Jesus came and dwelt among them, You could substitute that and say the word dwell, it really means tabernacled among them. Jesus came and tabernacled in that place. The reason they had temples and tabernacles back in the time of Jesus or biblical times is because there was a gap between us and God. God was perfect, we were not. God was great, we were not. And so to, to bridge that gap, there were priests who came to the temple and the tabernacle and they offered sacrifices on our behalf. This scripture is saying the gap is closed. When Jesus came and dwelt among us, Jesus tabernacled, meaning Jesus became the ultimate priest. Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice. And therefore, those other sacrifices and those other priests were no longer needed. My hope and my prayer this day is that whatever our understanding of the claim of Jesus Christ as Lord, as Logos may be, that God would open our eyes to see God in all God's fullness and glory through his son, that we would begin to see Jesus either in a new way or maybe for the first time. As we gather together here this morning, I would invite us to think, what do we think about the claim of Christ in our lives? And have we rejected that claim, either implicitly or directly? And what would it take to say and to see afresh the one who comes and died on the cross for you and for me? I pray this day that we would come and see the one who became weak on our behalf, the one who died for every enemy he ever had 
and love them the same. So that we would know that the logos of the universe is not some abstract, impersonal thing out there, but rather the tangible savior of the world who died on the cross for you, for me, for the world. May God help us to see this day. Amen.